I don't know how many of you love the show Family Feud. <laughs> show never gets old. You get a couple families duking it out against each other, trying to get the best answers. And as I thought about this series about the book of Jonah, Reluctant Witness, Jonah and the Church, I thought, what would happen if you got a couple families on that show? And the first question was, name something that shows up in the book of Jonah. Number one answer would probably be fish. Yeah, I heard fish or whale. That'd definitely be number one. And then Jonah, Jonah yes. <laughs> That's a good one. And then maybe Nineveh, maybe Second Chance. My guess is no one on that show would say a missionary God. I'd be surprised if someone said that. But really, all these other little pictures that we talked about, I see those like little tiny pictures in those collages that put thousands of pictures together. And then when you zoom out, you see the big picture. I see all those little things, fish, Jonah, Nineveh, storm, shipwreck, vine, worm, you name it, is those tiny little pictures. And when you zoom out and get the whole picture, when your eyes begin to adjust, what I really see and what I hope you'll see is a missionary God. A God that the Bible says is willing that none should perish. A God that Ezekiel says takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. A God that desperately, deeply loved the city of Nineveh. And a God who desperately, deeply loves our world today. A missionary God. That's the big picture, I believe, and I want to jump in, right where many of us have jumped in probably hundreds of times if you grew up in Sunday school like I did. I hope that we don't trip on that. I hope that that doesn't keep us from seeing this missionary God anew. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And we've got to start with the basics, right? Who was this guy, Jonah? Does he show up anywhere else in the Bible? Or is this the only time we hear of him in this book? And the answer is, he shows up over in 2 Kings. And I get the feeling that in the land of Israel, where he was God's spokesperson, he was probably really popular. Because he had spoken a very positive message there. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. You don't have to turn there unless you want to. The king was Jeroboam II at the time. And this verse says, Jeroboam was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel in accordance with the word of the Lord. In other words, the boundaries expanded during his reign. And Israel got as large as it had been since the days of David and Solomon, those glory days. And check out the end of this. This happened in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, that was spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. So you can imagine if a prophet comes around and says, hey, our country's going to be nearly as big as it's ever been. We're going to expand financially. We're going to be wealthy. And then it happens, you're going to be well-liked. They're like, hey, Jonah, give me five, man. That was awesome. You, you told us God said that was going to happen, and it's happening. Our kingdom is growing. You the man, Jonah. You the man. This tells us 
also that Jonah was real, okay? That verse in 2 Kings says he was the prophet from Gath Hefer. It names a very real city. There are people that like to look at that book of Jonah and say, no way. That's just like a really cool fairy tale right up there with Tangled and Beauty and the Beast and, and other things. There's no way that could happen. A guy alive for three days in a fish, this is not real. If you don't take the author of Kings at his word, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. He said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man, who's that? Jesus, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he looks back and says, hey, this literal historical guy Jonah, just like he was in a literal historical fish, I'm going to be in the grave. And then he says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. So you tell me, does it sound like Jesus thought the Ninevites were real people? Yeah, if he's saying they're going to stand up at the judgment because they repented, he believes they were real. So who were these Ninevites? Anybody ever been to Iraq? I, I thought that was a long shot. <laughs> this city of Nineveh was right near where the modern-day city of Mosul is in Iraq. You may have heard that name during some of the wars that we've had over there. And it was actually built by a Nimrod. And I don't mean it was built by a stupid, incompetent idiot. I mean, this guy's name was actually Nimrod. Genesis chapter 10 says he built the city of Nineveh. And then after that, all it says about him is that he was a great hunter. And I was trying to think how we got, you know, today we say Nimrod and we think of someone stupid. I looked at some of the cities he built. He built Nineveh. He built Babylon. And as I look at the Bible, these are cities that are always like coming against the almighty God and always getting punished for it. I think maybe that's where we get Nimrod. You don't build cities and build religions that go against the almighty God. But he did. It was the second largest city in the nation of Assyria. Only Babylon was larger. And when I say Assyria today, that may not mean a whole lot to a lot of us, but I want to tell you the kind of people these were. They worshipped a goddess named Ishtar, and she was a goddess of war. She was a, a brutal god, and they did an awesome job of worshipping this brutal god because it's known from history that as they battled other countries... One of the things they would do to their victims that they had taken hostage is skewer them from the bottom up through the top and put that stake out in the middle of the desert where they could bleed and die to death in the hot desert sun. They would literally take people that they had captured and peel the skin off them while they were alive. They would pile huge pyramids of skulls outside the cities of the people they had destroyed. So you can imagine that your average person in the other countries around Assyria didn't get a whole lot of warm, fuzzy feelings when they thought, thought about these people. And when you come to Israel, you got to add one more factor. The same time Jonah was around, there was another prophet named Hosea that God sent telling Israel, you're going to be captured by the Assyrians because of your sin. Double whammy. No wonder the Israelites hated the Assyrians. Can you imagine? Just, just think about how you feel about Al-Qaeda. 
What sort of feelings arise when you think about 9-11 and you think about the way they and the Taliban treat women and the way they operate around the world blowing up innocent people? You, You feel that feeling in your gut? And then imagine a prophet from the Lord comes to you in the United States on July 4th and says, because of your sin, United States, Al-Qaeda is going to take you over. Now you're in Jonah's shoes. Now you're understanding his reluctance a little bit. The message God wanted him to take there isn't a secret You can see it, and we'll talk about it more in a few weeks, in chapter 3, verse 4. The message was short and sweet and to the point. It was 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. Why? Because as that first verse said, its wickedness had come up before the Lord. In other words, he'd had enough. He'd seen enough of this cruelty and this torture. And his message, some of you would like it if I had messages like that, right? Like 10 words. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. On the surface, that sounds like a message that Jonah would love to take to his enemies, right? Because it sounds like 40 more days and you people are toast. You'd think he would want to take that, but Jonah knew God. And Jonah knew that God had something altogether different on his mind than destruction. And we'll talk about that a little more. But Jonah wanted nothing to do with that. For now, as we start out, I want to point out that Jonah was sent by God with a specific message for other people. And I think some of us look at that first verse of the book and say, man, it would be awesome if the word of the Lord would come to me like that and tell me what to do. Why am I here? And what I want to say is, while maybe we've forgotten or maybe we've gotten too busy He has done that. He has given us a word and he has told us as his followers in Jesus Christ why we're here. You remember Matthew 28? Jesus said it. It wasn't unclear. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you crystal clear wherever we are we are to be telling others about salvation in Jesus Christ baptizing them when they embrace him and trust and teaching them to obey him Jonah knew his marching orders if you're a follower of Jesus Christ you know yours we have the same choice that Jonah faced will we obey God or are we going to run Let's look at Jonah's response. Verse 3, Jonah ran away from the Lord. Now, this is kind of an amazing idea for a prophet. This is not this average Joe in Israel, okay? This guy knows God. He he probably had Psalm 139 memorized because it had been written already. You remember where David said, where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. He knew better, but still, he tried to get away from God. And don't we do that? We know God's everywhere. And that's why I wrote down here, you can run, but you can't hide. So Jonah looks at what God's put out in front of him. It's basically a 500-mile walk to Nineveh. That would have taken about a month in his day. 
And he says, I want nothing to do with that, God. Instead, he takes a 35-mile walk to Joppa, and he gets there looking for a ship to Tarshish, which is the complete opposite direction of Nineveh. And you know how many miles away it was? 2,500 miles away. (laughs) So Jonah's not trying to just get a little bit removed from this situation. He's like, I am out of here, and I'm going to go as far as I possibly can because I want nothing to do with these people. We don't have to guess why. I told you God had something else in mind, and we'll hit it more in chapter 4. But listen to Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah explains why he's running. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. And here it comes. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. See, Jonah knew darn well that God loved those Assyrians. His theology was perfect. He knew God's compassion and his mercy and his grace, but his heart was way out of line with God's because he hated those people. And I think he knew if those Assyrians got saved in response to his message, he wasn't going to get a very warm homecoming when he came back to his brothers and sisters in Israel. What are you thinking, Jonah? You remember the skewers? You remember the skin? You remember they're going to take us over in in a while because of our own sins? What are you thinking? This whole idea is worth camping on here, the fact that he hated people that God loved. Because I think a lot of us almost unknowingly slip into a mindset where we want God's grace for us and the people around us that are like us. But there's groups of people out there that we want nothing but God's pure, unadulterated hellfire and brimstone justice poured on, right? We want it available for us, but not for them. And what I want to say, one of the lessons in the book of Jonah that I think we've got to take to our hearts is we don't have a clue about God's grace until we understand that he longs to save men in the Taliban. He longs to save child molesters. He longs to save homosexuals. He longs to save drug dealers. And I could go on and on and on. He loves the world. That's what John 3.16 says. Now, I don't want anybody to misquote me. He hates their sin every bit as much as he hates your own in my own. And he will allow them to suffer the consequences of their sin if they reject his gift of Jesus. They will spend forever in hell just as you or I will if they reject his gift of grace. But 1 John 2 says that he died for the sins of the whole world. It doesn't say part of the world. It doesn't say for the sins of the people that look pretty good on the outside. It says he died for the sins of the whole world. So one of the questions I want us to wrestle with tonight is who are your Assyrians? Who are the people that God is calling you to share his grace with that you want nothing to do with, that you've rationalized because surely God couldn't love them? Maybe, 
Like one guy, my friend Steve, some of you heard this a while back. Maybe it's that family on your street that doesn't quite fit in with all the other families. You know, you got a peaceful little neighborhood and they have the late night parties and they have the trash in the front yard all over the place and it stinks when you drive by and the kids are running around without clothes all the time in the front yard and, and you're trying to enjoy your time on the hammock and it's just a little crazy over there. Steve lived on a street like that where everybody talked about this one family. And Steve said, you know what? I'm going to break the mold. Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners. I'm going to have this family over for ice cream. And I'm going to make a full meal for them. And I'm going to show them what it means to be loved because Jesus loved me that way. He's working on that family. He's off to a great start showing them that, hey, Jesus loves you. Maybe a murderer. Some of you heard the story about two or three months ago. Family in one of our own missional communities that was led by a couple from the ridge. Husband and wife murdered by her brother-in-law. And that guy ended up in a jail out here. The guy who did it. And there were two men in that church that I talked to that said they felt called by God to go out to that jail and sit across the glass from him. These were friends of this couple. And they felt called by God to go sit across from the glass from this man. Say, we, we hate what you did, but we want you to know that Jesus loves you. I haven't heard the end of that story. Maybe it's a difficult teenager in your own house. <laughs> I don't know who it is. Most of us don't run the way Jonah ran. You know, most of us aren't catching boats to Tarshish anymore. But we run nonetheless, don't we? You know, I was thinking about some of the ways we like to run from what God wants us to do. Let's say it is that person in your house that desperately needs Jesus' grace. And all of a sudden, you just happen to get more busy at work. Oh, I got to work late tonight. I won't be there for dinner. Got to work late again tomorrow night. Got to work late all week. I... And it's not just that you have to work. It's that you're running away from what you know God wants you to do in your family. Or maybe it's someone in your neighborhood. And all of a sudden, maybe you don't click with them. And it's real easy to get real busy with your family. Even real busy with your church doing good things, and you're just filling up your schedule, really, so you don't have to go talk to that neighbor that God is tugging on you about. What else do we do? We avoid his word because we know he speaks to us through this. So after we've heard it enough times and we've said no enough times, we learn, all right, I'm just going to put that on the shelf for a while. We stop praying because we don't really want his will. We want our will. And we stop hanging out with his people because they, they challenge us to go do what he's called us to do. Sometimes we run away too. Here's one cool thing I learned about this part. God loves Gentiles. And that's something that he told Israel about from the earliest days, right? When he first called Abraham the father of Israel, he said, I want to use you people to bless the whole world. And eventually he did that through Jesus Christ coming through that family line. That was his purpose from the get-go. I want to bless the Gentiles, the non-Jews through you guys. Do you remember what city Jonah ran to to catch that boat? Joppa. I want you to fast forward about 800 years. There's a man you might have heard of named Peter sitting on his roof in his hammock getting hungry and he fell asleep. And God sends him a vision in the city of Joppa of unclean animals in a net. And Peter says, I can't eat those. Those are unclean. And God says, eat, eat. You remember the point God was teaching him in that dream? 
Gentiles are welcome into my kingdom if they will embrace Jesus as well. And as soon as he woke up, men from a Gentile centurion showed up at his door and said, come with us. Our master wants to talk to you. He went to that Gentile's house, shared Jesus with them, and the man and his whole household were saved and baptized. Same city. Jonah ran away. Peter said, yes, Lord. God did not give up on getting his love out to the Gentiles. We shouldn't give up either. Are you running? Do you know who it is God's calling you to reach? Are you running? What's it going to take to turn you around? We know Jonah knew Psalm 139, but he tried anyway, and he learned the hard way. Jonah 1.4. Some of us like to learn the hard way. The Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Jonah was trying to get away from God. God, you don't get away from me. He disciplines his children. It's not to to harm us. It's to restore us to what he wants in our lives, the best he has for our lives, our holiness, and the mission that he's put us on. But there's some irony in this verse. You see that word sent? where it says he sent a great wind. There's a number of places in this book where God sends things. He sends the wind. He causes the storm. He, he brings the fish. Later on in the book, he, he provides the vine. He tells it to grow and it grows. He provides a worm to chew the vine. He provides a hot east wind. And all these things, guess what? They listen to God the first time. The only one in the book to not listen to God the first time was the human. That tells us something about, about our issues, right? And the, the word sent isn't just sent. It literally means he, he hurled a wind on the sea. The picture's like God grabbed a wind and just, whew, Jonah, here it comes, man. If we're playing dodgeball, whew, I'm getting you. Here comes the wind. I want to ask you guys, as you think about what God did, And not every storm is God's discipline. Not every storm is God working to bring you back. But sometimes they are. And I I want you to look at your lives, honestly, just between you and God and say, what storms are there right now? And is it possible that God allowed that into your life to bring you back to his perfect will for you, to bring you back in line with what he wants you to be doing? I'm not saying it is or it isn't. God's better at that than I am. You just ask him, are you trying to get my attention? Verse 5, all the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. I think we read this part and sometimes maybe we mistakenly think of these sailors as spiritual men. They they probably weren't from Israel because Israel generally wasn't a seafaring country. They're probably from a country that worshiped false gods. But I'm telling you, totally non-spiritual people or people that don't worship the God of the Bible get spiritual real quick when something starts going wrong. Like on an airplane, I think you get people yelling at each other and all sorts of rudeness going on. And then you hit that turbulence while you're coming down for a landing. Oh, Jesus, please, the whole, whole plane. Whose faces do you look at first when that happens? I look at the stewardess's faces because they know this. And usually they're like, they got the poker face on. So you know if the stewardesses are cool, they're either really good at their poker face or everything's okay. But if you see the stewardess with a crazy look on their face, as we did one time in one of our landings, that freaks you out a little bit. 
These are the sailors. It says these sailors were afraid. This was a bad storm. This was not some new guy on the ocean. They were afraid and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Now contrast that with Jonah. Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep, man? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. I think Jonah would love it if we'd say, well, he was just like Jesus in the New Testament. He's just sleeping because he knew things were under control. I don't think that was it. I don't know exactly why Jonah's sleeping, but I want to ask a couple questions. Maybe it was just an escape. You know, when you know you're disobeying God, and he keeps working on you, sometimes the only way to escape it is I'm, I'm going to bed. Maybe it was apathy. You know, you start disobeying God and you keep heading down that path, you get real apathetic about everything. He, maybe he didn't care about the danger these sailors were in. Maybe he's just like, I'm, I'm checking out. We don't know. But I want to ask us, is that us? As we look at the spiritual needs around us, the, the things the people around us are going through, are we sleeping while they walk through those tragedies? Or are we engaged? Are we ready and willing to be used by God in their lives to encourage them and bless them? Or are we totally apathetic? We don't care what's going on. We just want a little rest, please. Verse seven, then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Again, Jonah, you can't run away from God. He's even in in control of these lots. You know, chances are they were little rocks in a container with marks on them. And they picked the one for Jonah. That wasn't coincidence. God said, Jonah, you're busted. And now these people know it. So they asked him, tell us. And where it says, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? In the original Hebrew, it wasn't actually a question It says, better translated, tell us, you who are responsible for making all the trouble for us. In other words, tell us, you troublemaker. It's your fault. What do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? You can imagine when your life is on the line, you get angry when you find out whose fault it is, right? I mean, you're desperate. They're trying to get answers. And listen to Jonah's answer. He says, I'm a Hebrew. See if you catch the irony in this. I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? It's not like a question like they're curious, like what have you done? Like we want to know. They know what he's done. It's more like when you catch your kid out in the backyard doing something that they have no business doing. You say, what have you done? That's what they want to know. This is horror. Because they knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Do you catch the irony there? I worship the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, but I'm running from him. <laughs> and some of us would look at Jonah and say, what, what's up, man? It's kind of weird. But how many of us have or are guilty of the same thing, right? If you were to ask us, who do you worship? I worship the Lord. But deep down, we know we're running from what he wants for our lives. I think we all get there sometimes. And here's the real irony. As you look at the danger on that ship, why did we say God called the Israelites to be a blessing to the world? 
to bring the light of God to the world. The very one who was supposed to be bringing blessing to these guys actually brought harm to their very lives because of his disobedience. The one who was supposed to be a blessing became a curse on those around him. And I think we all got to wrestle with that in our own lives. Who is it that your disobedience is hurting? Because it's not just you. We like to think this is my, my problem, nobody else's business, but that's not biblical. Way back from Joshua when Achan stole the money and the whole army was decimated because he took things they had no business taking. Then his whole family was stoned. It didn't just affect him. It affected those people around him. So we got to think in those terms. If I'm not bold enough to speak the hope and love of Christ into the people's lives around me, they might spend many unneeded years in hopelessness because of my disobedience. Now, I'm not going to go so far as to say if you don't share it with them, they won't get saved because I believe God, God is in control. He, he has predestined those who will come to believe in him. I'm not saying that. But how many years are you going to let them wait because you're being quiet? If you're hooking up with people sexually outside of marriage, you're not just having a little fun. You're violating someone's purity and potentially ruining the trust in a marriage that they have down the road. If you're slack on what you allow to come in your house through your television, you may be leading your children into a worldly mindset that fights against what God wants for them. Our disobedience hurts those around us. Verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. And you almost wonder if Jonah is finally starting to be a little broken here about his sin. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Now, I want you to watch what the men did these pagan sailors. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. Do you see the mercy of these sailors? They're trying their hardest to save the one whose fault it is they're in the storm in the first place. They care and have mercy about Jonah. Now, isn't that in stark contrast to the way he's treating the Assyrians? And these people don't even know the true God. They got more mercy than he does at this moment. And that happens sometimes when, as believers, we're out of God's will. The unbelievers can put us to shame with their generosity towards each other, their kindness, their love, their forgiveness. When we're not walking in the power of the Spirit, when we're dead set on taking our own path, I want to say, let's not let the unbelievers put us to shame because we're, we're intent on being disobedient. Let's let Jesus be all that he wants to be in our lives so that they can see him. But it says they could not get back to land for the sea grew even wilder than before. Here you see God again say, no, that's not my plan. I'm in control. They cried to the Lord, oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, 
And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Again, you got pagan sailors fearing the Lord, making sacrifices to him. I don't know how they did that on a boat. That seems kind of dangerous. I'm hoping there's not fire involved. But they made sacrifices to him. And you've got his own prophet running away. I wonder, as we approach the end of our message tonight, what did that look like to the sailors when they threw him overboard? What did it seem like to Jonah at that moment? Surely, as they picked him up to throw him over the the side, they thought, this is the end for this man. Surely, Jonah, as he began to fall to the bottom of the ocean, said, God, this is the end. But then we come to the most familiar verse in this book, verse 17. The Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. What we learn at the end of this first chapter as we close is sometimes what looks like the end for us may just be the beginning of a second chance. What looks like the end for us may be just the beginning of the most awesome things God wants to do in our lives if we'll respond to what he's trying to teach us. Now, as we look at this, I don't know what your background is. Some of the skeptics have said, yeah, right, again, three days in the the belly of a whale. Maybe this will help you. Sperm whales have been found that have swallowed 15-foot whale sharks. Average male is about six feet tall, so that would be no, no stretch for a sperm whale. Whale sharks, in the 19th century, there was one found, after they brought it on the deck of a ship, they cut it open because it was still moving. There was a man inside of it, alive. So if you're skeptical, could this physically happen, perhaps that will help you know. But there's a whole other group of us in here that believe in a God who created heaven and earth with his word, okay? We believe in the Son of God who was born of a woman who never had intercourse. We believe in a Son of God who was crucified and verified dead by professional executioners and walked out of a tomb under his own volition. To those of us who fall in that camp, I want to say this seems kind of like child's play. (laughs) I mean, if you believe that God... This is just one more example of who he is. And you say, well, what's that look like? What does that look like when it looks like the end is here, but it's only the beginning of something beautiful? I want to give you two examples, one that we'll all know and one that we just experienced this weekend. One, you all have heard of Charles Colson, Chuck Colson. He went down hard in the tragedy that was Watergate, in Washington, D.C. He was one of the men responsible for all the cover-up that went there, went to prison. If there's ever a time when someone might think, my life is over, it's when you end up in the big house, right? But he goes to prison, and what happens? God reaches into his life, and he embraces Jesus Christ as his Savior. Now, fast forward decades, he later gets out, and he begins one of the most powerful ministries to prisoners that's ever been around prison fellowship. Countless men have come to Jesus as a result of what Charles Colson did. He might have thought he was on top when he was in D.C., rolling with those big cats and hiding that. No, God had something much better, but it took him going to prison for him to see that second chance. Another one, 
just this weekend. Lori was there. She's been through this tragedy from the beginning. You may have read about a young man who was running around at Lynx Lake naked and stole a Jeep and crashed it into a tree and later died at the hospital last Saturday. 27 years old, a guy named Calvin. Lori knew that family, and she called and said, hey, we know you, you guys at, at the church next door are serious about loving the community. I know you don't know this guy, but would you be willing to do the memorial service? We prayed about it and talked and said, yeah. Let, and so Wednesday, we met his mother. You imagine at her table over peach iced tea, and they showed pictures of when he was four years old and talked about how he liked to catch tadpoles and and lizards and grasshoppers. And I'm thinking about my two boys. They're three and six. And, you know, so much of the world only sees that 27-year-old who had been doing bath salts, which is becoming more and more of an epidemic. That's all the world sees. But we're seeing a four-year-old and a six-year-old who, who was fun to hang out with and loved his family and, and worked hard. But he was battling these demons of drugs, and it eventually caught up with him. And and at a moment like that, as I talked with Lori and, and his mom, I was uh, blown away because she started talking about, hey, you know, I don't want the family to get wrapped up in looking backwards. I don't want them to get wrapped up in the what ifs and the hows and the whys. I want us to look forward into the arms of Jesus. And I told the group yesterday, I said, that might ring hollow coming from me because that wasn't my boy, but that's his mother. And I just want to read you part of an email that she sent because it struck my heart. She said, The strength you prayed and asked God for for keeping me safe and bringing me comfort and peace has done wonders for me. In my home, amazing grace, I feel safe, joyful. I'm able to see my home again filled with white light. It is and was amazing grace. I know God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior are surrounding me in love and such peace. My life seems all anew, and my home abounds with a warmth given from God that has opened my heart, and I feel so safe and so protected. I've been assured not to fear and to never look behind into the darkness. You're all cheering me onward to carry me through these painful times. I know he will bring great healing to me, and, and as Lori talked with her, this mother is going to set out to spread the word about bath salts because she doesn't want any other mothers to go through what she's gone through. She's taking what any of us would look at and say, that's it, it she's done. She's going to be in her house the rest of her life hiding in her bedroom because she's taking it in God's grace and using it as a chance to be a light for him. So as we close, I want to ask us a couple questions. We know God's call. We know it's to make disciples of Jesus. Have you responded to that call? Have you said, yes, Lord, wherever that takes me, I'm going. Wherever I go this week, I'm going to be ready for you to speak through me. Or are you running away? Who are your Assyrians? Who do you need to ask God to soften your heart towards? What storms are you going through? And God, are you trying to get my attention to come back to you? Are you apathetic? Are you trying to shut out God's voice by sleep or, or drugs or anything else? Just are you running from his voice? We need to confess any disobedience that's hurting those around us. And I just want to encourage us. I don't know if anybody in here is going through what looks like the end. But I want you to respond to whatever God's telling you if you're his child and say, yes, God, I'm listening. 
I don't want this to be the end. I want you to use this tragedy to give me a second chance to bring glory to you. Please do it in your power. Oh, Lord, as we close today, please take your words and just, Spirit, let them run over our hearts, run through our hearts, through our minds, and show us what you want to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen.